Welcome back to What Would Mozart Do? Today, I am talking to musicologist and podcaster Annabelle Lee. Annabelle's research focuses on the way social media has influenced the classical music scene, and our talk today explores how recent developments in technology has influenced the various facets of the classical music industry. Hello, Annabelle. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of What Would Mozart Do? It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It's wonderful to have you here. Can I ask you to start with just introducing yourself and giving us a bit of background of your career and your relationship to music? Sure, I'd be very happy to do that. So my name is Annabelle Lee. I studied music at university before embarking on my career in working in the marketing and in the charity sector. Um, I read musicology at university for eight years at undergraduate level, then studying at master's and then at PhD level. My PhD was about the effects of social media marketing within the classical music industry. So that really helped in terms of looking for jobs and careers after my doctorate. I think like so many young musicians, I know that we were talking a little bit about this in your in, in my previous podcast, a lot of young musicians harbour this dream of wanting to be a international concert performer or or a musicologist. And that was very much the route that I I wanted to go down. I'd harboured these dreams of being a, a performer or going down the academic route. However, I realised that it was it was very hard to to get into. Um, it's a very competitive industry, and the I think the lifestyle, the work life balance is not necessarily for everyone. As you know, Nico, in both performance and musicology, I think living a career as an academic or as a concert soloist, and so. My mum actually, um, like all good mums do, found me a job um, in marketing, working for a small charity um, in London. And I was dragged kicking and screaming, applying for this job. But it also tied in very nicely with my work in social media and marketing. I would thought, well, I'd studied musicology at university for eight years. I almost felt that what I was going to be doing, I was going to be almost putting everything that I'd learned in the bin. But of course, that wasn't the case. I'd learned so much from working as a marketing coordinator. It was a really big jump going from that academic music environment to then actually going into the real world, to put it in inverted commas. Mm -hmm. So I worked as a marketing coordinator, like I said, for two years in London, working for a small charity, and then spent six months working as the marketing manager for another charity in the southwest of England. And concurrent to my marketing work, I wanted to start a podcast called Talking Classical. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I was living in London, in Kensington, which is, of course, the heart of classical music activity. And there weren't many classical music podcasts around at the time, as I'm sure you're aware, Nico. And I thought, well, the worst thing that can happen is that no one listens to it. (laughs) And I'll just put something out there and see what happens. 
But of course, London being this amazing resource for classical music, it was an amazing time to be able to just talk to artists and develop professional relationships with managers and publicists. And I got some kind offers to be able to interview people. And and two years on, it's been a, a really lovely journey. So I suppose that I've had a very interesting career path, you know, initially studying musicology at university and then going off and doing something completely different, sort of dipping my toe in the classical music world. I suppose I've always kind of looked at it more from an outsider, um, although I do have a little bit of industry experience. Um, But I'm very happy in the position that I'm in. And yes, that's my story in a nutshell. Wonderful. So I'm curious to know, from your experience in undergrad and postgrad and PhD, what are specific issues to do with music or connected to your music background that you notice that you are still using on a day-to-day basis in your work, doing your podcast, but also in your other marketing work? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Well, I think first and foremost, in terms of the podcast, I think having the background in music, um, having studied music at university and having gained some work experience in the music industry, having done some work experience with Askenaz Holtz, Bittlefields Music, um, the 16, for example, mm-hmm. has given me both an insider and an outsider's knowledge of the classical music world. So it gives me, I suppose, both curiosity, but also some insider knowledge when I'm interviewing my guests, um, when I'm asking them questions, knowledge about different composers, different works. And sometimes having a lack of knowledge, I think, about certain areas of classical music, I think, for me, can be almost a bit of a, a blessing in disguise because I'm asking you know, questions out of curiosity and it's kind of feeding my imagination. In terms of other skills, though, I'd say uh, creative thinking, learning to come up with solutions very quickly, learning how to work as part of a team. For example, when you're working in an orchestra, you're you're playing as part of an ensemble, translating that into working with other people is something that's really important. Learning how to negotiate with other people, research skills. And yeah, yeah. So I'd say that they're they're some of the, the things that I learned from my music degree that I can apply now. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said that the issue of asking questions, um, because, I mean, we we both um, worked up to PhD level. And as you know, when you get so focused on your on your subject or your topic, the the questions can become so deep rooted that it sometimes can be quite easy to. I guess, to forget how it is to ask a question um, just straightforward, you know, and that the inquisitive part of one's questioning stays intact. So it's, it's interesting for me to hear that you find that you've stayed in touch with the straightforward questions and inquisitiveness of your, of your work. Yeah, 
that that's a really interesting point. I don't know whether this is the case for you, Nico, but certainly in terms of my research, as a researcher, you're encouraged not to write from a particularly biased side or to be partial to, to one side of the argument, but to present a balanced argument. So yes, you know, from your background in music, from my background in music, we both have an insider knowledge that I suppose would make us privy to presenting an argument in a certain way about certain composers or about the industry. But then on the other hand, I think it's really important as well to, I suppose, think outside the box and think about those questions that you haven't necessarily thought about because then that shines a different light on what you're trying to say, on what you're trying to convey across in your argument. And perhaps, like you said, Nico, to, to clarify some of those questions. Yes. And I, I guess it's when you are so focused on one research issue, for me, for certain, especially in the beginning of my, my research, when I was doing my PhD study, it was quite tricky for me, on the one hand, to remember that, and, and it's just the, the the topic that I was researching, I can say that I'm one of the few handful of people in the world that knew this person in such depth and be able to really look into his music with such depth. But it's then easy to, on the one hand, uh, forget that people that you speak to don't know as much as you do, but at the same time to then communicate what you know with clarity and immediacy both to your learned colleagues, if you like, but also with a general audience. If you, for instance, write program notes or if you were to give a presentation, a pre-concert presentation, did you find the same? Yeah, and I think that that's a really interesting point. And I think it's about getting that that balance, isn't it? Because I think in, um, I mean, there's that ongoing debate, isn't there? I think in in the sphere of musicology and in classical music, there's a, a certain language that's used. Um, you know, there's a certain jargon, a certain technical vocabulary that musicians and um, musicologists have become so accustomed to using. And for an outside audience, that language can almost be a little bit intimidating. So, yeah, I I think it's about getting the balance between scholarly authenticity, I suppose, and high quality of work, Mm -hmm. while also, um, you know, they say in when you're writing a thesis, write it as if you're explaining this topic to an alien or something like that. Um, So yes, it's that balance between maintaining a high quality of research, but then also making it readable as well. And, um, you know, of course, academia has that um, strand of public engagement and the ref. So yes, it has to, um, your research has to now be accessible in a way that appeals to a broad audience and not just not just in the ivory towers. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I love the 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 reference to the ivory towers because it's it's so easy to I I think because one 
get so passionate about one's topic um, that, it, that it's easy to exclude a larger readership from it, not deliberately, but because you're so focused on the detail, the minutest detail. And I, I recently did a, a presentation, really an overview presentation on some of my research uh, to a choir that I work with, an amateur choir. And they just always knew that I was busy writing something or I was busy with something because if I wasn't playing the the piano for them, I would be sitting typing away or editing something. And they were just very curious to know what it was that I had been busy with. And so it was fascinating for me to see how they respond to the the presentation because a lot of the music was the first time that they would have heard it and they they didn't know much about the composer at all and just to see how they engage it's it's sort of it's real teaching in a way um just connecting with the people so we'll talk about your podcast in a moment but do you yeah that's still in other research that you're doing what what research are you doing and how are you engaging with a bigger audience through that research yeah that's really good well yeah so I've been doing a bit of writing actually for the AHRC research network called representing classical music in the 21st century and um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it but um, I've been writing an article for um, the Open Humanities, um, the Open Library of Humanities, the special journal which is going to be um, co-edited by the um, founders of that research network Mm -hmm. uh, including Adrian Adrian Curtin um, from the University of Exeter and um, the purpose of this research network work is really to um, answer questions and encourage I suppose healthy debates about ways that classical music has been represented in the 21st century you know whether that's elitist stereotypes or um, you know new ways of making um, classical music more accessible through whether that's mediatization or uh, something that's become much more pertinent in the news now we're encouraging equality and diversity or um, performing classical music in in different environments in building sites and uh, in pubs for example um so that's the that's kind of the 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 research network's aims in a nutshell and um with my particular interests and my my expertise and experience of working in social media both as a practitioner And also as a researcher, um, I was invited to uh, write a paper about the effects of social media on the classical music industry, drawing on some of the findings from my PhD thesis, but also extending that into um, what's been going on, obviously, with the last few months where technology has become more important than ever, I think, for artists and practitioners to promote their work, to promote their business services, but also um, as an outlet for them in terms of disseminating their music, their cultural products, if you like. Great. What was the journey for you to end up connecting your your background in music with social media? You know, because at first, at first glance, one could think that it's not really connected or that it's sort of tenuous. 
So what, what drew you to this connection and what have you been doing since your, your PhD in addition to the journal that you've just been talking about as well? That's a really, really interesting question. Touching that particular area of social media was quite unconventional. So I studied for an academic music degree at Durham University. I did the three-year course there and it was very much focused on historical musicology and music analysis, which I really enjoyed studying and I almost considered going down that path. But concurrent to my academic music studies, this was also around the time when social media was being used as a very novel tool in the classical music industry. This was around 2009, 2010. Um, it was a really exciting time when different artists, symphony orchestras, concert halls were using social media in ways to be able to promote classical music, to um, make classical music more accessible to audiences around the globe using microblogs, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. And I, I just got really interested in using these technologies. Um, and it was just a really exciting time, like I said, and it all just seemed very new and um, the possibilities almost seemed very limitless at the time. So I was very much following, I suppose, the online world in the classical music industry, if you like. Um, and so then when it came to studying for my master's, my PhD, I knew that I had to choose something that I was going to really enjoy studying over a long period of time mm -hmm. and something that would potentially enhance my career um you know musicology jobs are so niche and what is often required um for particular candidates are really specific criteria and really specific research areas mm -hmm. um however with my interests in studying social media from a more academic perspective there was the option to either go down the academic route or to apply my PhD into the real world I suppose by doing marketing for a company or doing marketing in in the music industry um, but there weren't a huge number of academic papers about social media and certainly about the ethnography of the classical music industry mm. at the time and so I thought it would be really interesting to study for a critical ethnography of the classical music industry and its particular relationship to social media looking at how marketers, artists, executives, app developers implement the technologies and then framing it with socio-political theories or musicological theories, ethnographic theories, ethnomusicological theories um, or certain theories about the Western arts musicological canon, for example. Mm. And yeah, it just kind of went from there really. And then after my PhD, that just opened up some opportunities to like I said, not only do the podcast where, of course, I was implementing 
the social media side of my PhD into the classical music industry. Yeah. But I was also um, writing articles about um, based on my research as well for various blogs and for various other magazines. So, yeah. Wonderful. Now, of course, all that work, yours as well as the societal work, I suppose, that happened between 2009 and 2010, really, I guess, prepared us for 2020, wouldn't you say, in the way that we are with classical music uh, connecting with technology and we're forced to connect with technology and and transfer our concert halls to our sitting rooms um, and, um, you know, sometimes a bedroom with a piano in it. How do you think has the relationship with classical music and um, technology back then prepared us for where we are now and where we are going next? Yeah, well, certainly, like I said, in 2009, 2010, social media was, you know, it was still a very niche thing. Mm. And I mean, certainly talking to um, various marketing practitioners and executives for, for my research and from my own marketing experience, social media are still seen as very much a a niche tool within classical music even though they've been around for what over 10 years it's only now I think with the lockdown period when March you know when lockdown 1.0 happened boom everybody was using social media everybody had to adapt to using these technologies and artists and people who'd never used social media before or who were scared of using technologies had to learn how to adapt to this new normal mm-hmm. I suppose um, and you know um, things like live streaming um, you know doing Facebook lives Instagram lives for example YouTube lives initially they would have been seen as you know quite novelty maybe um you know just a you know entertainment content i suppose but now they're in 2020 they're they're essential for musicians career development there are actually you know record companies and artist agents are now actually basing the success of artists and of new talent Mm -hmm. in terms of the number of followers that they have on social media of course you know talent is a part of the equation of course you have to be a talented person but now you know in 2020 certainly with the the Instagram generation the TikTok generation um, you know the explosion of media now it's become not enough just to be a good musician you have to have something else and what is that something else it's about developing a backstory about your love for music how you got into music or even your interest outside of music communicating all of that through social media which can help to build up your brand and to reach a wider audience through all of those different interests now of course there are people who 
don't like using social media, you know, for whatever reasons, it's just not for them and it doesn't work for them. And that is absolutely fine. But I think having an awareness of the technologies that are around are really, it is really important. I think just an awareness, I think, of the the media ecosystem and how that works is, I think, really important. But what I'm then curious to know, so, of course, we didn't know 10, 11 years ago that this is going to happen now. So the relationship between classical music and um, social media a decade ago prepared us for now. So what do you think is, how has the current climate um, and current situation and classical music's relationship with technology and social media today, how do you think has that changed the industry of in 10 years' time? I mean, has it changed everything irrevocably? And I, I guess with that change, either... Uh, what would you say are the benefits and what are the dangers perhaps that we should look out for, in your opinion? Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's really interesting to read some of the the policies from, from Arts Council England, for example, which is, of course, at the forefront of promoting social media in, in arts and culture. And it's it's very clear from the council's policies that artists and musicians and cultural organisations should be strongly encouraged to to use social media in their work to be using social media in 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 different ways mm-hmm. um you know whether that's live streaming or you know creating um, different types of arts, you know, the Twitter opera, for example, that's a, a really good example that emerged, I think, in 2009, 2010, the Royal Opera House, they um, created, I think, an opera in a day, I think, entirely of comprising of comprising people's tweets. Wow. But now, <laughs> in 2020, like I said, um, I think all of the, um, the, the, the advice that the council had suggested they're only being implemented now Mm. and I think only are we starting to see the effects of how um, technology has the potential to reach a wide audience across across the globe Um, but then at the same time um, like you said Nico in in my previous podcast there's something about using technology I think for live music that has both advantages and and disadvantages I think a lot of musicians of course they've needed to do live streaming of concerts in order to earn an income but there's so many technological faults and you know glitches with various various systems and you know only in this lockdown period have certain technologies have been devised and created specifically for live streaming in order to try and replicate something of of the live experience so yeah yeah I does that answer your question yes absolutely and um so I guess that 
what I hear from what you're saying is that technology in cl classical music and its relationship with social media is really a slow burn um, that we only now really see the uh, results of what the Arts Council wanted to sort of highlight 10 years ago and sort of prepare us for. Would you say that's, that's an accurate assumption or reading? I think I think you're you're right, Nico. I think you know when when Mark Zuckerberg developed Facebook in two thousand and four, it was primarily used as a social networking system for students at Harvard University. Mm -hmm. Now, stepping into twenty twenty, it is inarguably the biggest social media network in the world, and of course, all the various gadgets and gizmos have been added to to Facebook in order to um, in order to to help people all over the world um, use this platform but I think also you know it takes time for um, novices to get to grips with the technologies it takes time for the developers um, to actually solve glitches within the software for example and to be continuously improving the software for development and certainly you know that certainly rings very true in 2020 um you know with everybody using zoom now within the last eight months or so um nobody knew what it was and then suddenly we had the the zoom explosion and i think the the executives and the technologists must the technologists must have been aware um, of you know the various glitches that had gone on with so many people overloading the system yes. that they'd had to um I think it's it's reasonable to say that they had been you know working on on Zoom in order to improve the the user experience at this time. Yeah and I and I guess to also make it a more global platform because it it used to be um a platform that was really only used within business. Yes, that's right. And now nearly anybody can do a Zoom call, you know, and or will have been on a Zoom call, whether that's a pub quiz with the family in, in deepest, darkest lock, lockdown one, um, or whether it is, as we've said, for um, concerts or engagements and things like that or even podcasts like you and I are doing now yes yes that's right um I should probably say actually um just a little anecdote that um on one of my podcasts I was um a few months ago interviewing a very well-known singer and um it was only his second time that he'd used zoom so yes I think it's only it's only I think now that like you said Nico um that we are really starting to see the the global effects and um you know i think the mass awareness of how technology has become i think so important in everyone's lives now you know even on the the smallest the smallest level um you know there's that phrase the ubiquitous computer you know we all carry a computer with us in some sort of form you know whether that's a a smartphone a, a laptop and even around the house, you know, an ubiquitous computer can even be something like, I don't know, your printer or um, your your light switch. Uh, you know, we're, we're living in, you know, 
2020 has undoubtedly been the year for mass technology, I'd say. Yeah. It's a it's a real watershed year in so many ways, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, your podcast, Talking Classical, um, you've been doing that for um, over two years now, right? Yes, I, I've. Um, it's just just been. Um, well, it started in November twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. and um, so yeah, I've just been doing it for just over two years now. Yes, and I think that's also a, a really nice way. I think to um, combine, like I said, what I've been learning from my PhD, putting that into practice, but also I think you know during this this lockdown period. I think anybody who hasn't done a podcast hasn't been <laughs> doing the lockdown. <laughs> um, but I think I think people were really hungry for content during this lockdown period. They needed something, I think, just to just to just to escape and just to enjoy. And I think people also really enjoy listening to other people's stories. And um, you know, at this particular time, you know. Um, every single classical artist was free and so what an amazing time to be able to connect with artists and composers and other musicians around the world and just have a have a conversation with them wonderful so what what are your um what are your uh prospects for for uh talking classical beyond 2020 it's a really, really good question. I mean, I've only been doing this podcast for two years. So, I mean, like we just said, with the effects of technology, I'm only just starting to see the um, of my podcast. And I feel that it's only just starting to, to take off mm-hmm. um, just now. So the answer is, I'm just going to you know, I do have some plans for various guests and interviews. I'm just going to keep doing some, I'm going to keep doing interviews and just see where that takes me, really. Yeah. Just just keep doing what you're doing because it's working, right? Yeah. And I think also, you know, not only, I mean, it is a, it is a passion project of mine, but also I think I would really like to hope, I really hope that, you know, it's lovely to have people around the world listening to this podcast. And I really hope that listeners can get something out of it, whether that's learning about a different aspect of the classical music industry, learning about, you know, what it's like being a, a world-class performer or learning about perhaps um, lesser known composers, for example. Um, you know, this industry as, as with your podcast, um, you know, the classical music industry is, is so diverse and I think not just limited to performers and the great canon of composers now. There are so many career opportunities and, and prospects. And, you know, I really wanted to highlight that, that ecosystem. Yeah. And then one last question um, connecting to the ecosystem of yeah. music globally. Do you think that our relationship with technology and especially the relationship with classical music and technology and social media over the past couple of years, is that perhaps what has brought about this big shift in, I mean, the academic term being decolonization of Mm. 
the canon, you know, looking beyond the um, the musical canon, uh, the Western classical music uh, canon, and see what what is else else out there. Do you think that is a um, one of the products of this connection between technology, social media, and music? Hmm, that's a really interesting point you make there. I think it's I think it's one part. Um, you know, with I think the lockdown period has provided a really fruitful opportunity for the composition of, of new works and um, certainly for um, the discovery, I think, of new talent and also with perhaps lesser known composers as well. Um, you know, SoundCloud, for example, is just a real minefield for for new music, you know, you can explore um, sub-genres and sub-sub-genres of, of different musical genres. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that it's, you know, one side. But I think that research has, has significantly improved with online archiving, for example. But I think also just in terms of disseminating information and I think having access to to archives for example and I think just I think removing the stigma as well I think um from the ivory towers as well of of research I think you know musicology maybe is becoming much more accessible I know that you said that you are researching the work of Richard Hageman and I wonder how you came across his work was it through online sources or did you discover it through another composer and trace the the genealogy I suppose of different composers no to be honest um it was in a coaching um when I studied in the U.S. I was at the University of Michigan for two years and one of the singers that I was coaching brought in this one song which was a beautiful poem by Rabindranath Tagore, uh, Do Not Go, My Love. And uh, we just read through the song once and I fell in love with the poetry and the music. And then I thought, well, I'm, I'm curious to know what this man has written, what, what other work he's written. And that really just sparked off, I, you know, I would say an obsession uh, with his life and his, his work, and so yeah, I'm I'm continuing to be busy with his, his unearthing his legacy, as it were. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. I think that we explore, you know, the canon in in different ways. Then, I mean, you know, whether that is through technology, whether that's through online archives, whether that's through through word of mouth. And, you know, I think it's it's becoming a really exciting time now just with all the the sources and just the rich repositories of information that are now available in person and online. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really exciting time for the development of the canon. I think a good example of that is that, you know, the proms, I think, with the, um, you know, the, the commissioning of new music to, to tie in particularly with, um, you know, the, the the Black Lives Matter and, um, you know, all, all of the various, um, you know, the difficulties of 2020. Composers have been writing music to, um, I think, reflect 
those those struggles not only new composers but also more established composers as well and um, particularly you know Ellen Wallin of course so it's a yeah yeah sorry I went off on a tangent there a bit but <laughs> no not at all I, I guess it just again highlights how music can speak to people directly and comment on what is going on around us. I think that that is something that 2020 has really highlighted, you know, that it's not this far-off, unapproachable medium, but that it's actually tangible and it is a platform where people can voice their ideas and their thoughts on what is going on around them at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, whether that's through, whether that's through technology, you know, whether that's through a musical composition, whether that's through broadcasts on the radio, I think it's really important to remember. And I think, like you said, Nico, 2020 has really highlighted that, you know, music isn't just about the work itself. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a collection, it's a conglomerate of so many issues of ideologies and values of different value judgments of different worldviews just a mixture of all of those different things and I think offers political commentary social commentary on on the world today absolutely well Annabelle thank you so much for being such a great guest and bringing just so much knowledge on technology and social media and your research into this field to my podcast. It was really great to chat to you today and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much, Nico. And um, congratulations on what you're doing with your podcast. I think it's a really valuable resource for musicians at this really difficult time. Keep up the good work, Nico. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, you can find other episodes on your podcast provider. Feel free to get in touch with me via Instagram at whatwouldmozartdo, follow me on Twitter or email info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.